Our scripture this evening is from Ephesians. We're continuing our work in Ephesians. We're going to be finishing chapter 1 tonight. Ephesians 1 will be, uh, I'll read verses 15 to the end of the chapter for context, but we'll be focusing on verses 21 to the end. Hear now the word of the Lord. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the spirit, in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let us go to the Lord. O oh Lord, our God in heaven, we do pray that you will illumine our, our hearts as Paul has prayed here through your spirit that we may uh, see your word more carefully and clearly and how it applies to our lives. Please uh, give us understanding, O oh Lord, that we may know more heartily and believe in you more firmly uh, and know your will for our lives. We pray that you will guide our thoughts and meditations to do you honor and to bring a blessing upon us tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We read the whole of this section, verses 15 through 23. And as I mentioned, we're going to be working on the latter part of it, uh, the last uh, section. But the review is uh, Paul has been praying, uh, and he's been reporting, a big part, he's been reporting on his prayers to the Ephesians. So he tells them what he's been praying for. And as I had mentioned before, it's kind of sly of Paul because he has telling them what he's been praying for that they would understand, and then he teaches them so that they may understand the things he's praying for. So it's like they get uh, understanding by his prayers, and then he teaches them that they may understand. But it requires uh, that the eyes of their heart might be enlightened, which is what he's praying for, verse 18. Um, and then he focuses on that we would understand because he's speaking not only to the people in Ephesus, but really to the church at large. You can, you can tell that when he uh, proceeds even in our little section of this passage, that we would understand uh, things of power. And I mentioned he basically uses all the words for power available to him. He talks about that you would understand the power, the effectiveness, uh, translated here, the working of God, his strength, his might. And then he uses this phrase, which I like to uh, render his superabundant magnitude. 
and I'm reading the ESV here in verse 19, it's translated the immeasurable greatness. I like to uh, render that superabundant magnitude. It's this overflowing uh, increase of God's power toward us who believe. Which is quite interesting because it's toward us who believed, which he brought into effect in the Messiah, in Christ Jesus, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. And this is the uh, thing that really is capped off in our passage because it sounds like I want to understand all this strength he unleashed on Christ when he raised him from the dead. But then he says, but it really was toward you who believe. Uh, it was unleashed on you as well. Uh, and this is really important for us to understand. Christ is a public person in the old language. He is one who represents us. So what happens to him happens to us. So that we are the beneficiaries of what happened to him. So that God, when he raised Christ from the dead, is in uh, principle raising us from the dead. Now Paul is going to say that overtly in the next chapter of Ephesians. He's going to say, state that very plainly. Uh, we have been raised from the dead in Christ Jesus. And then he's also going to say, and we've been seated in the high heavenlies along with Christ. He was seated in the high heavenlies. We have been seated in the high heavenlies in Christ. This is not theoretical. All you're doing is dividing an event in time. What happened to him will happen to us so that it is inevitable that it will happen to us if we're in him. If, we're, if our lives are bound up in Christ Jesus, then what happens to him will take place in us. So you can say properly, we have been raised with Christ. It is, it is that certain. It is a reality because he is the one who represents us. He is, what happened to him happens to us, and it will have an inevitable effect upon us in resurrection. Uh, Paul is persuaded of that. It's based on the word of God. Jesus himself says that. This is, this is the truth of the resurrection for us. And when Christ went to the cross, he was accomplishing this great task. Now, I'd, I'd like you, if you were here this morning, to reflect upon um, that message from Matthew 11 that John the Baptist is wondering if he really is the Messiah or not. If he really is the one to come or if there's someone else who is uh, to follow after him to come. Um, and I want you to think about who we're talking about here. In this passage, it is really clear who Christ Jesus is and the, uh, what he is accomplishing that he could not be dissuaded of accomplishing. He could not be turned from that purpose. Nothing, even uh, someone as great as John the Baptist, could turn him from that purpose. Uh, you will recall that Peter receives a rebuke when he says to Jesus after he professes Christ, 
you know, Jesus is the Messiah, you are the Christ, uh, he receives a, bu- a rebuke when he, uh, Peter tries to dissuade him from going to the cross. And Jesus would not have it. This is something that is uh, not going to happen, and here is why he was going to the cross to defeat death. He was going to the cross to take over all creation. Not just uh, Israel, not just maybe even a larger section of the Middle East. He was going to the cross to take over heaven and earth in this age and in the world to come. Everywhere at all time from now on is under his sovereignty. And that's what Paul is saying. I want you to understand this, who we're dealing with. Now, on the cross itself, it is a place of great victory. Christ himself in Colossians 2, it's said of him by Paul, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. A triumph is a big parade where the victorious army takes all the prisoners and all the loot that they've uh, looted from the enemies that they've uh, captured, uh, and they have a big parade carrying all this treasure and all these prisoners down the main street with the big parade. That's a triumph. And Paul says, well, Christ has triumphed over all authorities and all the rulers. He has put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ, or I beg your pardon, on the cross. Now the irony of this is, he has put them to open shame on the cross, which is the place of public shame. The death of the cross is the most shameful kind of death. You're held up to public ridicule, naked in front of everybody, and being tortured in front of everybody in a place of shame. You will remember Hebrews 12. Christ despised the shame. doesn't say he despised the pain, which is horrible, hard to imagine, but he despised the shame. But Christ, taking that shameful cross, put it on his head, and he put his enemies to shame on the cross by triumphing over them, because he was conquering death. He was conquering all of his enemies. It's a place of being exalted and lifted up, and a place where God would glorify him. And he is the most glorious one ever. He cannot be put to shame. He turned it on his head. And that's what we have here, because the ultimate enemy that Christ had in mind is death. 1 Corinthians 15 uh, verse 21, 26. So this is, the, this is what Paul is praying, that we would understand this, that the power of God was unleashed in Christ Jesus, and he's been seated at the right hand of the Father. Now look at verse 20, that he affected in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the high heavenlies. It's translated here in heavenly places. It is a, a phrase that can be rendered in the high heavenlies. It's the place of, of great glory. He's been seated at the right hand of the Father on the throne. Uh, and this is Christ, a place of sovereignty. 
to be seated at God's right hand, it's, it's, you're not seated because you're inactive. It's just the opposite. It's a throne. It's a place of rule. It's a place to exercise sovereignty. By your word, things happen. He is a great king, exalted at the right hand of his father. This is what Hebrews says in chapter 1, verse 3. He upholds the universe by his powerful word. Speaking of Christ, our, our Lord Jesus Christ, he upholds the universe by his powerful word. He's one of us. This is a human being. Yes, he is the Son of God, divine, equal with the Father, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. This is the Son of God, but he's incarnate. He's a true human being. This is what we confess every Lord's Day in the Apostles' Creed and in the Nicene Creed once a month. That he is, he is truly human, light of light, from God himself, and truly, but truly human, born of the Virgin Mary. So, brothers and sisters, Paul wants us to reflect upon just who it is who's exalted to the right hand of the Father. Someone who has our interests in mind. This is why he wants us to see that God is unleashing his power toward us because he's raised his son incarnate, one of us, who stands as our high priest to his right hand so that he may intervene for us. When we have our prayer meeting, brothers and sisters, we're not alone. Our Lord Jesus Christ says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. I am with you even to the end of the age. He is, he is here to encourage us, to strengthen us, to, know, to remind us. He knows our prayers from a distance because he's not far away from us anymore through the Holy Spirit. He's a powerful one. Through his word, all things accomplished. We have the privilege in our prayer to call upon him to act in new ways in our midst, to act according to his will in ways that will be, bring great blessing upon our loved ones, our families, our friends, and strangers who may need him. And this is our privilege that he, grant, he gives to us, that we may participate in his will uh, in uh, extending the glory of his name now, in our passage, going back to Ephesians 1, in verse 21, Christ is exalted, the right hand of the Father, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Notice all four things there. Not accidental that it's four things. Four, when you see four things like that, usually it means the four corners of the earth. It's all, you know, everywhere you look, uh, but these are all the authorities, all the lordships, all the uh, authority structures of the world as well as in the heavenly places. He is exalted above them all. He has dominion over everything. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, our Lord Jesus uh, Christ says. And then in verse 21, he adds this one thing here at the very end. Uh, it, actually, it's toward the middle, I guess, and above every name that is named. Now, there's a way to, to understand that phrase, 
so that you really want to render that as every name that can be named. This is actually a form of, uh, this is one of the options for rendering that form. Uh, every name that can be named. Christ Jesus has authority over every name that can be named. Now, this gets, this really gets down and uh, to the nitty gritty for the Ephesians. And so when they hear this, this means something really clear and day to day for them. And that is, these are the Ephesians who you will recall from Acts chapter 19 had engaged in sorcery and black magic. And even after their conversion, they had been engaging in these practices until they saw a uh, demonstration of the name of Christ and also of a failure for <laughs> black magic. Uh, and they burned their magic books. You will call that from Acts 19. Uh, this is the people, who, this is, uh, if you you want to look at that, I'll give you the verse. I think it's 1919. Let me, let me get this to you. So in Acts 19, 18, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices and a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. This is an enormous amount of money, by the way. Uh, we have remnants of some of these books, by the way. Not those particular books, but books that are similar to that. Uh, and they had uh, red lettering, which was particularly costly to produce. Uh, it's all done by hand, of course. Uh, and then uh, some of the letters were gold. So you would have molten gold and you know, dip it and have molten gold on the page. They were very expensive books to produce. Uh, and it's because those precious forms of words were thought to have more powerful. People thought that words were powerful. Now, Ephesus was known for the seven mystical words. There were seven words called the Ephesian grammata, the Ephesian writings, the Ephesian words. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I've, I know all about this stuff. I remember researching that and thinking, have I, do you ever actually see these? Not really, they're kind of secret, but when you get them, it's just nonsense. Syllables is what it is. Uh, but they're really powerful. The more nonsense you speak, the more powerful you powerfully you're speaking. Um, now, what does this have to do with this every name that can be named? Have you ever noticed, say, for example, in Mark chapter 1, have you ever noticed that the demons say to Jesus, we know who you are, the Holy One of God? See, they're trying to claim power over him. If you know the name of someone, you have power over them. That's what this is all about. You have a certain authority over them because you know their name. You know, the Romans actually had a deity 
whose name they guarded, it was a state secret. No one was allowed except Roman citizens to know the name of this deity because if an enemy found out the name of this deity, the enemy would have power over the state. Uh, this, is, this is the world that our Ephesians live in. So when they hear Christ has authority over every name that can be named, he has all power. If you want to see this, you go to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, most encouraging book for people like this, because you strip away the veil hiding uh, Christ and the Father from us in a vision, and you don't see this teeming horde of demons fighting against God and winning. There are no demons, there are no, there's no competition. Instead, in chapter 4, you see the Father seated on his celestial throne, and then you see the Son coming forward in chapter 5 in great glory after purchasing with his blood people from the four corners of the earth. This is, who's the Lamb who has, what does he have? He has seven horns, horns a sign of kingship. He has ultimate kingship, perfect kingship. He's the sovereign one uh, who has all authority in heaven and earth. That's what's being said here. Now in Psalm 8, is quoted in verse 22, and he put all things under his feet. It's a quote of Psalm 8, which is said of the human race. It's said of you and me. It's said of creation and human beings. We are, we are designed to rule over this creation, and yet it has been interrupted by the fall. But now you see in Christ Jesus he is the last Adam, the one who brought a new human race to pass in him so that now all things are in submission under his feet and he's brought that original creation to a more glorious completion so that we will follow having all, of, all things put under our feet in the new creation. And that's what, that's what we have here in Christ Jesus. So Christ Jesus now has initiated, verse 21, the start of the new creation because he has ruled not only in this age, but also in the one to come. The age to come is the new creation, the kingdom of God. This is, this is the reality that Christ represents. Brothers and sisters, he has, he has authority not only in this age, but in the world to come. This, again, is why in Matthew 11, it's so important to realize what Jesus is up to uh, when John wonders if he's the one to come. He's aimed at having all authority in the world to come, the new creation, which will, will, which will last forever. This earth is destined to be burned. This, there's an end to this age. And then the world to come will take over and it will be eternal and no longer ever uh, will there be any conclusion to it. Now, we keep reading. Now we come into something that makes it all come together in verse 22. And he put all things under his feet, this Psalm 8, and gave him his head over all things with regard to the church. Notice how you now come in. And interesting, isn't it? 
verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Notice what he says there. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things with regard to the church. He doesn't say churches. See, this is what we confess in, our, in the creeds, which has, to, you know, the people who compose these creeds have studied scripture intensely and they understand the unity of the church with regard to the church. There's one church in the world, and I believe in one holy Catholic church. Catholic means universal, one church. There's one true church in the world when we're part of it. We in this congregation, we in our presbytery, we in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, joining other genuine churches of Christ Jesus, this is part of our confessional documents, make this really clear, we, this is what we believe, are part of the one universal church. There's one church in the world, genuine people of God joined together in congregations that may be you know, in different places and we don't get to know each other as well as we may want, but there is one church, one body of Christ in this world. And then he uses this term uh, body. Christ is the head over all things. Now, I promise to uh, read from my friend Bobrius here, so forgive me for taking your time on this, but I, I made promise to some of you to read this. So this is a fellow named Bobrius. That's his name, okay, so this is a first century guy. This is one of my friends, Bobrius. Bobrius wrote uh, fables. And when you're studying the book of Ephesians and you come to this business of Christ's head over all things to the church, some people think head there means source, not doesn't have any authority, but rather the source, like the head of a river. You know, it's the place where it originates. Well, here's the problem. So Bobrius wrote fables. This is the first century. This is a contemporary of Paul, okay? This is a guy writing nearly at the time of Paul. And he writes this. Once a snake's head decided that the head, I beg your pardon, once a snake's tail decided that the head, now you won't know why I'm reading it, the head ought no longer to go first and refused to follow its lead in creeping along. Let it be my turn now, it said, to lead the way. This is the tail. Keep still, said the other members. How can you lead us, poor wretch, without any eyes or nose, by, by means by which all living creatures move on their way and guide each limb? But they could not dissuade the tail from its purpose, and the rational part of the body succumbed to the irrational. Thereafter, the, the hinder parts ruled the foremost. The tail became the leader, dragging the whole body along in blind motion. It fell into a hollow pit and bruised the spine on the sharp rocks. Then the tail, which had been so self-willed before, became submissive and turned to supplication, saying, Mistress Ed, save us, if you will. T'was an evil strife that I ventured on, and evil has been the consequence. If you'll put me where I was at first, I'll be more obedient, and you'll not worry about getting uh, you'll not worry about getting into trouble again under my leadership. 
That word leadership could be rendered lordship. Christ has rule over all lordship. Well, obviously, the word head here means authority. And the tail is in submission to the authority. We as the body of Christ are submissive to our head. He is he has all authority in heaven and earth, and we submit to him. But our Lord Jesus Christ is not a domineering, uh, harsh master. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. So, brothers and sisters, this is a place in our passage where everything comes together. You see, he was raised as our head for the sake of the body. We are united to him. We are connected to him as his body. Now, I want you to reflect briefly on that. We are the body of Christ here on earth. We're the physical manifestation of Christ's rule and his presence in this earth. How important are you as a member of a church of Christ Jesus? You are that important. As you participate in the life of the church, you are participating in the mission and presence of Christ in this earth. He is present with his people for good in this world. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. Not because you and I are all that important. It's because of our head through us. We are reflected light. We are salty because our saltiness derives from him. But, having said that, your your participation here in the life of this church is vital. It is the most important thing in the world. This is not a club or a voluntary association where we are here to have fun. Being together is a lot of fun. I grant that. But that's not our sole purpose. Our purpose is the gospel of Christ Jesus, the word of God, and to stand fast upon him and be his emissaries in this world. And this is the embassy. Our citizenship is not here. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are ambassadors for Christ in the world. And so, brothers and sisters, I hope you take heart from that. Yeah, you're going to say, that's, that's a high task. I don't know if I can fulfill it. You fulfill it by the grace of Christ, because he's the head, and he will equip you. We're actually going to find that in chapter 4. He's going to talk about how that all works. And part of the glue is love. So, but that's chapter 4. So we have to get to Ephesians 4 in good time. For now, brothers and sisters, this is a great privilege and obligation. So that in Christ Jesus, now we can say with Paul in Ephesians 3, that we may know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, because Christ Jesus fills all in all. Let's pray. O Lord, our God in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of belonging to the body of Christ. We thank you for being our head, having all authority. We submit ourselves to you, O Lord, willingly, because we do so in the day of your victory, in the day of your conquest over all of the evil powers that would put us to death and, and trample us under their feet. We, O oh Lord, have hope and life in Christ Jesus. 
Encourage us, strengthen us for this great task. Build us up in our most holy faith together. Build up our church that we may be faithful witnesses and uh, an embassy for Christ Jesus here in our area. We pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.